Welcome everyone to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. We're recording today in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. We're here for the meeting of the Association of Corporate Counsel's Global Board. Um, and we have, in fact, the vice chair of the board with us today. Annalise Reinhold is general counsel with Emirates Integrated Telecommunications Company, which is based in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Annalise, thank you so much for being here. Mark, thanks very much for having me. And uh, Dubai's a long way to come. I probably win the prize for uh, having traveled the furthest to come to a podcast. So I know you're here for the global board meeting, but it's it's great that you can also squeeze in some time for a podcast. It's fantastic to be in, here in Charleston, my first visit ever, and I'm really impressed so far. Great. Well, I hope you enjoy it. I think the history here is really neat. So I hope you get some time to look at that. It's just it's a fun city, and you, I know you'll have good food. So that's a, <laughs> that should be that should be a treat. Um, Annalise has agreed to talk to us today about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, uh, which is managing outside counsel as well as other legal service providers. Um, I think it's fair to say that that's probably one of the most important jobs of, of outside counsel. So I think it's a topic that a lot of our listeners will appreciate hearing about. I, I want to talk to you about some of the tips, but maybe we could start, Annalise, with a general, if you have a general philosophy or approach to how you approach managing those relationships. Yes, thanks, Mark. I mean, I must say that my philosophy has changed a bit over the course of my career, probably because I spent, you know, the first six or seven years of my career in private practice, then I moved in-house, but then later on, I went back into private practice again as a partner. Ah. And that was a bit of a revelation to see things from the other side of the fence, so to speak. And I believe that I developed a much greater empathy for private practice lawyers because of that experience. And I hope that I've brought that empathy to my approach now to dealing with my panel of external legal advisors. Well, that's great. Well, and for the listeners that may have heard our another one of our podcasts on emotional intelligence that we also recorded here, and Charleston will appreciate that the importance <laughs> of that empathy coming in. And that's, that is good to have that mix of experience, because I do think sometimes there are communication gaps where a partner that's never worked in-house, I'm one of those, doesn't, you know, it's hard to really understand what it's like to be in-house counsel. And similarly, if someone comes through, a lot of companies are now hiring right out of law school or very quickly out of that, they may never have a feel for what it was like in a, in a law firm. So I'm glad you can bring that, that perspective. Um, in the introduction, I indicated your general counsel with Emirates Integrated Telecommunications. Tell us a little bit about that company and what kind of responsibilities you have as, as general counsel there. The company is a major telecoms company in the United Arab Emirates. The headquarters is actually in Dubai, the city of Dubai, which is one of the biggest cities in the country. The company uh, started off as a very small project office about 13 years ago, which was when I joined. And um, from there has grown into a multi-billion dollar enterprise. It uh, provides the full service of telecommunications, full suite rather, of telecommunications services. So mobile, fixed, pay TV, internet, runs data wow. centers, has a broadcasting arm as well and a satellite earth station. So it's, uh, it's a pretty exciting organization, very dynamic, about 2,000 people, and it's been an extremely successful startup enterprise that really has grown from scratch into something pretty amazing. 
Well, that's exciting. Sounds like an interesting place to work. Are there other lawyers in addition to you in, in the council's office? Yes. So I've built up a team. We now have a team of about 11 lawyers. Oh, wow. And okay. myself. That's a good size group. Yeah, and, uh, Almost like a small law firm. Yeah, I mean, it, yes, yeah. yes, it is in a way. And um, I started off with nothing, basically a chair, a desk, and I had to recruit people from there. So that was <laughs> okay. quite challenging. And actually, nowadays, I do run the department a bit like a small law firm, because one of the things I kicked off about five, six years ago was actually getting the Lexel Practice Management Accreditation from the Law Society of England and Wales for our department. Gotcha. It's an accreditation for law firms, but also for in-house teams. And we are the first and the only in-house team outside the UK to actually have that accreditation. But it really helped us to take things to the next level because it just helps you to have a framework and run your department a little bit analogously, I suppose, to the way a law firm is run. I think that's terrific. You know, I hear a lot about a challenge surrounding professional development in in-house departments. And I've, I understand that's particularly true internationally, where you may not have, you know, the same standards in other countries in terms of continuing legal education or those requirements. But that certification program sounds really valuable. And I you know, certainly commend you for doing that. And I'm sure it sends a message to the folks on your team, too, about a commitment to a certain level of performance. Yes, I think clarity, consistency, and a focus on quality is really important. And the, the accreditation actually gave us a framework for doing that. So that, that was really useful. The other thing that has been very useful, uh, particularly you know, in Dubai as an emerging market, is ACC. It, ACC didn't exist when I first arrived in the Dubai market. Uh, it kicked off, or its predecessor organisation kicked off in about 2007, and it was just fantastic in terms of ending the professional isolation that you felt as an in-house mm. lawyer back then, you know, before ACC existed. And I think that is just such a valuable resource for in-house lawyers. Um, in markets where often the lawyers are sole counsel, they are surrounded by perhaps people who don't really know what good looks like for an in-house lawyer. So to be able to have access to resources and just other lawyers to brainstorm with and bounce things off and help you realise that you're not going insane. Uh, that's an extremely valuable function that ACC fulfils. No, I think that's wonderful. And I think a lot of our listeners probably don't even realise that the Association of Corporate Counsel is anywhere other than the United <laughs> States. How many, can you give us a sense of how many countries or how many members there are that are outside the US? What, what's kind of the scope right now of, of the ACC? So the ACC has members in about 85 countries around wow. the world. Obviously, the largest membership in terms of numbers and numbers of chapters is, is still in the US, but the international contingent is, is really growing. I don't have off the top of my head the exact percentages anymore, okay. but it's a, you know, a sizable chunk now and it's really forging ahead. Terrific. All right. Well, that's great information to know. So for today's topic, you know, we wanted to talk about the task of managing your outside counsel and your legal service providers. You know, and I think it's interesting and particularly timely. I've certainly seen a transition over my almost 30 years of practice from, you know, a time where a lot of companies either didn't have any lawyers at all or simply had one in-house counsel and their only job was hiring outside lawyers to do everything from transactional work and contracts to IP litigation. And over time, I think those in-house counsel have grown. They've taken in more responsibility internally. But a big part of that role is figuring out what to do internally and what to do on the outside. So I'm interested in, I guess, 
give, particularly given your background, your thoughts on how do you decide in the first instance whether it's something you want to do yourself and either hire a new person on your team or assign one of your folks or get outside help? I think you've made a very important point, which is that the function of the in-house uh, lawyer has really evolved over the last what, 30 years, 25 to 30 years particularly. And um, I agree with you that back in the day, probably in-house lawyers, really their main function was just to send things to outside counsel and manage those in a pretty hands-off way a lot of the time, actually. The thinking seems to have evolved and I think it's come about because of cost pressures, uh, budget pressures within organisations. Every organisation, though, has a different model. So really, you need to think about what type of model is your organisation running? Are you a company where your budget's quite tight, so you're expected to do most of the work in-house? Or are you more of an organisation where there's a bit more flexibility or actually they are not interested in having as many heads, I suppose, in the legal team and are happy to support things being outsourced? So you need to be clear on that first Mm -hmm. because that will... Uh, right. Maybe you need to have some frank conversations actually with HR and with senior management about what is the expectation in terms of the model, and then you can um, start adjusting accordingly. Yeah, I think that's a good a good point because again, some companies may have a very fixed legal budget and you can't go over this, and you've got to figure out how to work within that, and others may have have greater flexibility. And obviously, there's going to be different histories too in terms of what is what is done on yeah, the outside. Absolutely. And I think if you if you start off with assumptions in your mind and you haven't actually validated those with the powers that be in your organization, that can end up being a, a source of friction because you're actually talking at cross purposes and um, without actually realizing it. So you need to be clear from the outset so that then you can go and um, instruct your external lawyers accordingly. Gotcha. Where you decide that this is a project that you're going to need some outside help on, And I guess, to me, that usually comes up in one or two ways. Either there's a particular expertise um, that outside counsel may have. You know, as a litigator, obviously, if it's going into court in North Carolina, that's probably not, you know, that's not something that a company outside of North Carolina, they're not going to have in-house counsel that want to go into court. So that's often an obvious example. But it may be a particular intellectual property expertise of needing someone to do a trademark patent application or deal with a particular regulatory issue around ERISA or some other complex privacy regulations or something else where you just don't have it. Once you make the decision to go outside, what would be the process for choosing who to use? How, how do you find the right counsel? And is it a law firm or is it a legal service provider? You know, there, there are alternatives out there now. It's not always outside counsel. So give us, you know, what, what thoughts are there in terms of that, that selection process? I mean, for myself, we actually have um, a formal law firm panel in place. And so we would be choosing a law firm from amongst the pre-existing panel providers. And the way to make that choice, either you might run a small beauty parade from a subset perhaps of the panel firms or if it's something that perhaps so you do the the beauty parade process is probably appropriate if it's a larger transaction and you want to really probe and see who's going to be the best counsel for the deal but if it's a smaller piece of advice or something like that then maybe you don't do a beauty parade you just um, identify which of the panel firms have the expertise in the area concerned um, and then engage with them of course How you engage with them also depends on what processes you've developed. I tend to prefer nowadays to get some kind of upfront 
cost estimate from the firm, but not everybody feels the need to, to do that. It, de- it depends really on, on how you've, um, what your engagement model is with the firms. Gotcha. Well, there's several things I wanted to ask about there. Let me start with the panel process, because I know that's something that some companies have gone to. Um, I will say some companies have gone to panels, but they have very large panels where there may be 100 firms or or 50 firms. Other companies, even large companies, have said, we're only going to work with a dozen you know, firms. So let me, let me ask um, a couple questions from your experience. I guess, first, how large is your panel? And do you have a thought on what the right size is for a, for a panel? I don't have a view on what the right size is. I think you need to, and, and I know that there are trends, and the trends seem to swing from one <laughs> side of the spectrum to the other. Right. People want to have large panels, then they want to have small panels, and every time I read something in, in some kind of legal publication, I see the trend has you know moved again. This, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it you know depends on your organisation. You just need to make sure that you give yourself enough flexibility. Uh, I've been in the past perhaps locked into panels that um, didn't give me as much flexibility as I needed. You need to look at what's happening in the legal market. At the moment, there seems to be a lot of volatility or certainly, you know, in my region, volatility with practice groups moving between firms and quite a lot of movement. So you want to make sure that mm-hmm. you're not left with no one left on your panel really who has the, the teams that you actually wanted to work with Right. Um, because you can only run a panel process quite time-consuming you can probably only run those every three years or so, three or four years, realistically. So you don't want to leave yourself short. That, that raises a good question. And I know it's something, you know, we do a fair amount of lateral hiring at our, you know, at our firm. And that's sometimes people are joining the firm because we're on a panel and they need access. Other times there's issues where a group wants to come to us, but we're not on the panel. And so there's a question of how do we keep that work and how do they do that relationship you know, and it sounds like that can be an issue too with your panels of trying to make sure you've got teams. Are they done geographically? Obviously, you've got, I assume your company, it's, it's located in the UAE. Is most of the business there? Do you have firms that are global in scope? Do you have issues that arise outside the UAE? And how do you deal with that from a panel perspective? Most of our business is actually in the UAE, but okay. from time to time we do have issues that arise outside. So we try to have a mixture of panels on the firm, some with global network and, and others who are more focused on local issues because you need to be able to cover everything and you can't, of course, ever uh, anywhere in the world find a firm that will deliver everything. You know, There's no one size fits all. So right. you need to definitely make sure that you have an appropriate spread and you have to think carefully about what your needs are likely to be over the lifetime of the panel when you're actually making your selection so that you, again, don't run out of choice. Right. Okay. Um, one other question on the panel, and then we'll talk a little bit about the selection process for particular matters. Um, you mentioned, because I've seen different views on how frequently you either update the panel or allow new firms to come into the panel. I think you indicated maybe every three years is about as much because of the time commitment. That's that's your view. I'm curious about that process. Is it Do you look at a brand new panel every three years where everyone reapplies, or is it kind of an open period where new folks can apply to come in? How, how do you run that? Well, it's going to depend, again, on your organisation. So, you know, in my case, our procurement department is involved, and so we have to be guided by their policies about timings and, and how the process is run. And again, I think then, you know, assuming you're an organisation who is not uh, running the panel process through an actual formal procurement uh, mechanism, then you'd have a bit more flexibility and then you could just really think about, you know, what are your needs? Do you want 
have continuity with some of the firms, for example, or maybe you want to, maybe you're happy with your providers, but you just want to do a renegotiation of the rates and the engagement terms. So again, I think with all of these things, you get out what you put in. You need to invest upfront to think about what are you really trying to achieve, and then you know how are you going to achieve that. And the more time you spend putting those building blocks in place, in my experience, the better, clearer, uh, and more mutually satisfying relationships you'll have with the panel firms down the track. Um, when you have panel firms, do you negotiate pricing with that firm? And is it hourly rates, fixed fee, some combination? And is are those prices good for the whole term and the panel? And if, if a firm becomes your panel firm, do you say this is what we'll pay for partners and associates, or how, how do you deal with the, the pricing component? Well, in our case, our procurement team are the ones who handle the commercial negotiations. And so that's really in their hands. Uh, they have a, a model based on their expertise as procurement professionals. I can't obviously, for confidentiality reasons, go into the details of what that model no, no. is for us. Yeah, and I, yes, and I wasn't looking for specifics on any kind of pricing, but it's interesting to me that you've got procurement handling that I don't at least in the US that's not probably the typical model that that we would see here it's often the legal departments doing the price negotiation as well as the kind of quality selection so it's just it's interesting to to hear about yeah, that yeah that approach. I'm, I'm aware you know around the world approaches differ I must say my experience of having the procurement team handle the commercial negotiations has been positive hmm. and uh, I know people might You'd be surprised by that, possibly, because I, I, I hear that other in-house counsel sometimes are, are nervous about allowing non-lawyers to be involved in the process, but I have found it to be a positive experience because the procurement professionals have experience of negotiating with other types of consultants, so they've got lots of benchmarks of you know similar types of professional organisations, professional services organisations that they've already dealt with, so they usually have you know quite a good structure and framework that they can put in place. So I haven't had any issues with that. And actually, it's in some ways easier to allow them to actually to front that part of the negotiations. I think that's a helpful comment because, and it's true, that's not, certainly our training as lawyers is not in procurement and price negotiation. I know, I think for, I think on both sides of the equation, it's often one of the less comfortable parts of the relationship is, okay, well, you know, I'm excited about handling this case for you. We know where we want to go. And now we've got to work on the economics and how much you're going to pay and when are you going to pay. And uh, I, you know, I think that can be challenging for a lot of lawyers. So bringing in some folks that their job is, you know, that negotiation piece makes some sense to me. I, I think the, the fear I've heard expressed from some in-house counsel is that all procurement's going to care about is the lowest price. And they will simply say, you know, we will put this out to bid and we'll get five law firms and we'll just go with whoever gives us the lowest rate. And I think there's often a sense that that's not, the lowest rate lawyers are not necessarily uh, the best lawyers for the case. It may not even ultimately be the cheapest because you can get people that are giving a low price because they don't have experience or they don't have credentials. So that's the fear that's voiced, but it sounds like you're, that has not really been your experience. Yeah, I'm aware that is the fear and I can understand why people may have that fear. However, the key is to make sure that you have a good relationship with your procurement team in the first place and you explain to them very well you know, what your requirements are Obviously, the same type of fear could apply to the company procuring other types of professional services, and yet um, you don't hear 
people in the strategy department or whatever raising those type of concerns. So I think the key is to be very, very clear about what you're looking for and then work very closely with the procurement team to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Great. You also mentioned, um, I think you called it a beauty parade. Mm -hmm. I think probably I've heard it more frequently referred to as a beauty contest, Mm. but I think it's the same idea. That's where you may say, this is a significant piece of work, big litigation or major transaction, and we're now going to go to our panel and invite people to present proposals. That's something that I think particularly newer general counsel often They think they should do it, but they don't really know how to run a beauty contest or what to look for. Um, So I'd be interested in practical tips you could give some of our listeners to, you know, do's and don'ts for conducting one of those contests. Well, again, I think it's really important to uh, think at the beginning about what it is you're trying to achieve and scope out as clearly as possible the specifics of what the transaction is or what you're looking for from the firm. You know, if you're new to um, in-house and you haven't really got any templates for running a beauty parade or a beauty contest, you could probably go and talk to perhaps some of your colleagues in other departments of the company, maybe strategy or some of the finance people who've been dealing with investment bankers, and they may well have run similar processes and have some kind of document you could use as a, a bit of a template. Or the other thing that you might find is if it is a transaction and there's already other professionals involved in it, maybe an investment bank has already been brought on board by your company, they often have pretty good templates that you can use for the legal part of the transaction, templates for the beauty parade Mm. scope of work that you can use as a starting point and then you can flesh those out with, you know, additional specific information that you have. Got you. And when you talk about a template, uh, is that like a scoring template where you're going to have some factors? And again, I think the approach varies, so I'm just trying to Mm, get mm. some tips is it is it one where you say okay these are we're going to score each firm on these five criteria and tally it up or is it a less formal you know these are some questions we're going to ask and then we'll just talk you know as a legal team and see what who where we think the best fit is well the first template that you need and, and what i was referring to in my comments is you know what is it exactly what's the scope of the work that you want the okay. firm to do oh yes you're, and, you're talking about a, a description yeah, of the a actual description work of the project, right. yeah okay. so you know the, obviously the project but you'll know yourself pretty much you know what the proposed transaction is but then what do you want the law firm to do in that transaction for you and it's always best to actually articulate that it doesn't have to be long it can be you know one or two pages uh, but at least that gives a framework and you start off on a clear footing with everybody because that helps you, of course, to make sure that the proposals that you're getting back are actually apples. I mean, so then you can compare apples with apples. Uh, Templates for scoring and things, I mean, in my experience, in my career, I've had to make those up for myself. Okay. (laughs) Nobody else seemed to have anything. (laughs) Um, But that's, again, you need to think about, okay, what am I looking for from a firm and what are the parameters and some kind of scoring system that makes sense for yourself. Again, that will help you make sure you're comparing your apples with apples and getting some kind of consistency in your overall evaluation. Do you typically conduct an in-person meeting with all the contestants or do you review written submissions and then pick a handful to meet with? What What's your process? And I guess what are your thoughts on what makes sense for people that don't have experience you know, running those? Yeah, I mean, it depends how well you know the firms. If you don't know them and their teams very well, it's probably best to meet with all of them just so that you can get a feel because, you know, in a transaction, the chemistry with the team is really important. So you need to meet them 
you know, as time goes on, when maybe your panel has been in place for a number of years and you've done a number of these type of exercises before and you know the teams, then you may be able just to decide pretty much on the papers because you've got a good feel for the personal chemistry and the approach of the firms. And um, that'll help you to decide who's appropriate for the transaction concerned. But certainly initially, it's best to meet people, I would say. Great. Now, that's good. I assume price is always going to be a factor in making the decision. You've mentioned chemistry uh, with the team is a very important factor. Can you tell us about some of the other things that you might be looking for that would make the the difference between firm A and firm Mm. B? Yes. I mean, chemistry is very important, but price is also important as well. And again, you know, you need to be guided by your organisation and it's, you know, the budget that you have uh, and so on and so forth. Expertise in the area. But I mean, what I've tended to see is that expertise has converged over the years. The legal services market is extremely competitive nowadays and many people have very similar expertise, which is why I guess I'm mentioning the, the chemistry and the cultural fit really of the firm with your organisation, especially if it's a transaction where the law firm is going to need to be dealing with not just the legal department, but senior people in other parts of the organisation. right. And also, if they may need to be, you know, appearing in front of the board, you need to think carefully about uh, making sure you have a good cultural fit and then the price. Gotcha. But even, even I've noticed nowadays with expertise converging that the price points can converge as well and often be fairly similar. And if so, then you're really deciding which is the approach and the team and the cultural fit that you're going to go for. Okay, that's very helpful. Annalise, I'd like to move beyond the selection process and talk a little bit about managing outside counsel once a matter's underway. Um, Again, I think that can be a pretty time-consuming role depending on the size of the deal or the case. And I've seen a range of folks that, you know, from a very hands-off, okay, we've hired you, you know, go do it, to a much more involved kind of detailed project plan and reporting and scheduled meetings. I know some of that's going to be driven by the work, the nature of the work. Um, But I'm interested in your thoughts as someone that's had experience both on the council side and, you know, what, what tips could you give in terms of how to actually manage that relationship on an ongoing basis to make sure you're in the right direction, you've got good communication. What, do you have any tips in that regard? In my view, it's similar to uh, general outsourcing. I mean, appointing a law firm is not really outsourcing in the traditional sense, but many of the same principles apply. There's a contract, I suppose, which is your way of, of managing the engagement. And the more active you are about managing it, the uh, greater the likelihood that you're going to get the results that you are expecting at the end of it. That's that's certainly my experience. The active, the proactive management is preferable, not micromanagement of what the firm's doing, but right. managing from a quality perspective and also just managing expectations and making sure things don't go off the rails or time is not spent on issues that perhaps don't really warrant that level of attention because the external lawyers don't have the in-depth understanding of the business that the in-house lawyers have and so sometimes can not necessarily appreciate what the priorities are for the business or the areas where more or less focus is needed. So the in-house lawyers act as that bridge and help steer things to make sure that they stay on track from the perspective of the, um, of the business. 
uh, and avoid hopefully cost blowouts or any other unexpected right. surprises. That's certainly something that podcast listeners, we've heard before uh, from a lot of in-house counsel, and that is you have to really provide that direction. And the counsel don't always, they don't know the ultimate business objective. You know, they may assume based on, well, this is just like this other case, I'm going to run it this way. And it may not be a good fit or may not align with the the real business objective. So that direction and communication can make sure you're on the same page and that that counsel's really doing what what you need them to do. Absolutely. And that was really, you know, one of the key learnings uh, for me from going back into private practice, you know, at partner level later in my career. I really appreciate, I felt so cut off from the businesses, (laughs) (laughs) from the clients. Uh You know, I, I didn't have the handy telecoms engineer down the corridor who I could run down to and ask questions about uh, technical things when I needed it. So I, I really recognised that, um, you know, you are one step removed when you're in private practice. So now as an in-house lawyer, again, I recognise for my part that I need to be that bridge and really explain everything to the external lawyers so that they can produce the best work for us. Oh, I think that's great. We talk so much about in the initial stages of a um, engagement with a client, the importance of communicating not just the objectives for this particular matter, but the business objectives in broad strokes, but as niche as needs to be. Because it is, to your point, like it is so important that, you know, it's understood, no, we don't, I understand why you're going down that app, but we don't. You don't need to worry about that part of it. It does feed it, but the opposite is true too. That it's we're so focused on achieving this the the best outcome for this particular matter, but we didn't realize that these other business objectives that are connected to that that maybe aren't in attached to this specific matter are infected, and, and it is important that we factor those in. And so if that discussion doesn't happen, and if that's not clearly understood and, and requested and whatever, there is going to have some potential for some pretty serious breakdown and some wasted time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, context is absolutely key. And, you know, I prefer to over-explain to the firms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so far, the feedback that I've had from firms has always been positive, that it's been helpful to get that contextual information, especially up front, so that everybody gets off in the right direction from the outset and then you're more likely to get a better end product in terms of the work and have less issues with unexpected surprises on invoicing as I as I mentioned and you know a mismatch of expectations. Now and that's certainly true as an outside counsel I really like to know you know what is our goal what is our objective Um, I can help you get there but I want to understand what it is and it may not simply be we want to pay the least amount of money or get the most amount of money. There may well be other objectives about relationships with the other side or ongoing business uh, concern here or time imposition on the management folks that may be pulled away for depositions or a hearing or something. And, and I think knowing about those gives us a chance to do a lot better job for um, our clients. Yes, and I think you need, as the in-house lawyer, you need to put yourself in the shoes of the external lawyer. As in-house lawyers, we don't like it when our internal clients just send us a whole pile of emails and expect us, with no instructions, expect us to sift through all of those and interpolate from that right. what, what the question is. Yes. Uh, so in turn, we shouldn't be doing that when we're briefing the external law firms either. We need to explain things to them properly. That is you know, a core part of our job in order to make sure we get the best outcome possible from their services. 
What's your view on scheduled reports? And again, I've seen different clients take somewhat different approaches. There's some that say, we're going to have a weekly phone call every Friday to talk about the matter. Others want a monthly written status report. Others are just like, call me if anything important is going on. There's no structure around it. I've seen it work in different contexts. But again, it's a question I think some new new outside counsel are kind of like, I know I need to be in touch and I'm really busy. I don't know what your practice is, but I think it's an area where people are always looking for you know, tips. They don't want to be over-regimented, but they also have concern that if they're never getting reports, something pops up after six months and you say, well, what do you mean? That? <laughs> what do you mean this case is going to trial? So... Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is one of the areas where you need to think clearly if you're running an RFP or you're doing a beauty parade for a particular transaction, you know, what what do you actually need for the particular scenario? And make sure that you agree on that with the firm up front. My personal preference is I prefer structured reporting. Mm -hmm. I think it's helpful, again, because it just avoids unpleasant surprises. Mm. And also, I think otherwise, you know, everyone's busy and time can run away with you and then you are more likely to get the unpleasant surprises because everybody's just running along right. under an assumption that everything's going fine and that the other party, whether it's the in-house lawyer or the external counsel, you know, understands A, B, C, D, and then it turns out six months later that actually that was a, a misconception I and mean, that's not helpful to anybody. And what form do you like the structure in? Do you like an email? Do you have a call? Uh, is there a form that you actually have counsel fill out? What, what works best for you? Just because I've seen different approaches. You know, emailing is fine. I mean, there's all sorts of tools nowadays that the world seems to be moving more towards tools and platforms. Yes, uh, all sorts of tracking things. <laughs> yes. And uh, like uh, kind of analogous, again, if you're an outside counsel, like our docketing systems yes. or other things yes. that will track and remind yeah. and, and do that. So, and I do, I think there's software products mm -hmm. now that are mm -hmm. essentially case management products yeah. for outside counsel that you can buy. Yeah. They cost money, but, mm. you know, they'll provide some formalized structure. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it needs to be easy. I mean, you need to reduce the need for manual data entry. Selfishly, I say you need to reduce the <laughs> need for manual data entry by the in-house teams because they don't have the, the bandwidth really in terms of administrative staff to do that. I think law firms are a little bit better geared up in that regard. So, Maybe it would be a good tip to get your external lawyers to do all of the reporting directly into your platform if you have a have a platform. I, I think platforms are the way to go so that the data entry is only done once and also that it's always there in re real time for everybody to look at. Gotcha. No, that's great. And is there a platform you're happy with? Well, counsel are thinking about it. Yeah, I, I'm I, still looking at platforms. I think okay. <laughs> ACC, ACC has a great role, I think, in this era of legal tech, really, to become a sort of um, authoritative source of, of knowledge and information about legal tech uh, solutions. There's so many solutions out there. It was very obvious at the ACC annual meeting. There was a lot of vendors um, exhibiting. It was really interesting. Yes. Uh, I was fascinated by all the new developments, even in the past 12 months that had sprung up. Uh, but it's difficult to get sources of information actually about those products. So I can see a great role for ACC there to be a font of all wisdom. Great. That makes that makes sense. 
We've talked about management in general. I don't know if you manage much litigation or if someone else in your department does that. I know that a lot of the in-house counsel that I've talked to on this podcast and in my regular professional work, a lot of them haven't done litigation. So it's an area of sometimes heightened anxiety about, I don't really know the litigation process. I'm wondering if you've got experience there or tips that you would share that might be specific to litigation in terms of how to think about that from an inside perspective. Well, all companies have litigation, obviously, so all in-house teams need to get to grips with litigation one way or the other. (laughs) I actually see litigation management and reporting as a particularly good growth area for these tools and platforms. I've done quite a bit of research uh, in this arena, and there seem to be, you know, a lot of interesting things popping up now. Hmm, so great. I would encourage okay. people to, to look to at do those. some research on those yeah, for, absolutely. for the litigation yes. management yeah. ones. No, yes. that's a great that's a great tip. A final question um, is another area that can be awkward, which is uh, if you need to uh, fire or terminate outside counsel. Mm-hmm. Any tips? Because again, a little like the negotiation on price at the beginning, I think ending a relationship, particularly if you're unhappy with the performance or they haven't done a good job, um, can be challenging. I don't know if you've had to deal with that, but um, if you've got any tips in that area, that can be a challenge for less experienced GCs. Yes. I mean, one would hope that one would never get into that situation in the first place. Um, you know, it's like with any commercial relationship, I suppose, it's always better to end it graciously in a sort of as far as possible to make it a win-win, I guess. Uh, You know, I'm not really in favour of radical terminations of any type of business relationship because I think that just raises risk actually for both parties. Mm -hmm. Regular communication and staying on top of things with the firm should help you never reach that point uh, in any event. Uh, and then if you do, then you need to have an ad hoc conversation about it and try to um, to end things in a mutually um, agreeable way. Great. Okay, that's a good tip. I know we're about out of time. I wanted to say any final parting remarks or bits of wisdom that you would care to share with the other in-house counsel that may be listening? Well, uh, I really do want to emphasize that um, a little bit like the old software adage, garbage in, garbage out. So when you're managing your relationship with the law firms, you will get out of the relationship what you put into it. So as I said earlier, the more you can invest up front in setting the context, the more you can invest in an ongoing way, uh, you know, with the reporting and other feedback and other sort of attributes of the relationship, the more beneficial the relationship will be for for both parties and uh, the more mutually satisfying, in my experience. That's terrific. I know we've talked about some resources during the course of this podcast, um, but I know you may be familiar with others in your role on the ACC Global Board. If if we've got folks listening that say, wow, I want to learn more about those management tools or I want to learn, you know, more tips on managing outside counsel? Do you have suggestions for resources? Who, who, who are the right places to go or people to, to reach out to? Well, there's quite a detailed section on managing um, external counsel and also alternative legal service providers in the ACC's new in-house counsel certification program gotcha. that was launched last year. A number of my team members have actually attended the program and they've reported that it was very, very helpful for them. So that might be something that people might want to have a look on ACC's website and see when the next program is and whether that's something they want to uh, participate in because it goes into some quite some detail about uh, you know how to get best out of your uh, in-house, uh, your ex- external uh, law firms and alternative providers. Terrific. No, that's a good suggestion. 
Fantastic. And if our listeners um, have questions for you, um, is there a good way to contact you? Or are you giving any presentations or anything that would be relevant? Or should they just contact you through ACC? Yeah, I think probably best to contact me through ACC. I do occasionally present on the in-house council certification program. So if they come along to one of those uh, in my part of the world, they might get to see me in person and they can ask me whatever questions they want to (laughs) on the day. Otherwise, they can just reach out through ACC. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Annalise. I really appreciate you sharing those comments with us. I think it's a topic that is top of mind for most of our listeners. So I think you've given us some, some good insight and experience. I want to remind our listeners you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse or subscribe to the podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or iTunes or the Google Play Store or SoundCloud. If you have questions or comments on this or other episodes, please share them with me via LinkedIn or Twitter. My account is CLP Lawyer. I appreciate your listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. We will see you at the next station.